Good morning. Um, I don't know if anybody's new to Stone Creek, but if you are, welcome. And um, my name is Dojin or Sarah. Either's good. And I use the pronouns she or her. And um, I'm one of the head priests at Stone Creek. And to begin with today, I, I just wanted to take a moment to recognize um, how long it's been that we've been in this weird situation. <laughs> And I, uh, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about the tremendous resilience that um, we all exhibit in our ability to adapt and how quickly we adapt to things as human beings. It's amazing skill or it's an amazing capacity that we have as human beings to adapt to difficult or changing circumstances and to recognize um, this is weird <laughs> and hard. And, um, and, that, and that to have so many people, I mean, there's, we're all having our individual or familial or you know, a smaller in crises, but then there's this collective crisis and to have so many people negotiating a crisis simultaneously is, is possibly unprecedented. You know, Not that there haven't been pandemics before, but to be aware of one another at the way we are because of, of the way we're connected. It's super stressful. And just to acknowledge that, you know, we may have adapted and we may have found some, some ways of, that we even appreciate what's happening. And, or I keep hearing like, well, introverts are fine. And I can say like, I'm an introvert <laughs> and I'm struggling. And, uh, and I know that I'm not alone in that. And, and I think any of us that, that have any kind of mental health issues that they're amplified and uh, many people's financial strains are amplified. and. Yeah, I just wanted to begin with, um, even though this is our new normal, uh, reminding us that it's not normal and that what's being asked of us as, as human beings and as like a collective body of humanity is um, extremely challenging. Um, yeah, and to appreciate our resilience in it. I've been thinking, I've been stepping back a little bit and thinking um, of, of like, what, why am I in it in terms of the Dharma? What, what is it? You know, what, why am I here? Why do I, why do I practice? Why do I invest my life in this practice? Why do I want to teach this? Um, and the word that keeps coming for me is healing. What I'm interested in as a human being is healing and healing um, on all levels including including uh, the karma of our nation and healing the in, in the realms of suffering what is actually transformational um, and what is what is curative or what is uh, antidote or what meets suffering in a way that is transformative and healing and uh, that there's this expression or there's a practice I think in, in the Jewish tradition about which I don't know very much so I'll acknowledge that. And I, and I only hear it, I've heard it used in certain different places um, and I'm probably not even gonna pronounce it right. So if you know how to say it, uh, please let me know. Um, but it looks like tikkun olam, to heal the world or repair the world, or repair creation. Um, I've heard about it in a several different places and including the movie about um, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Where he, he, uh, and where it came up there was that 
after 9-11, he came out of retirement to do a, I think it was like a, a you know, like a public, um, public health message <laughs> on the TV. And he talked about this concept of repairing, repairing creation, repairing the world. And what I've read a little bit about it since um, from Jewish scholars, it's um, the way that it's being used now has really been only used that way since the 60s or 70s. It's an old concept that's been kind of appropriated to our times, but, but to this concept of to be human and to, to, to exist in this world, our, our, what we're here to do is to help repair and to help heal. And that, so that concept comes to my mind a lot. Um, and, then, and, and then I think a lot about what it means to be human, what it means to be a Buddhist practitioner in relation to that whole concept. Um, why, why Buddhism in the face of the tremendous suffering that, that's just happening to us on so many levels. And last time I talked, I was talking about I kind of want to continue the themes, but I was talking about Sangha as a verb. That's a, uh, that was an article written by Sebene Selesi. But that idea of relating and uh, Sangha-ing, that we take refuge in the effort that we make toward relationship in the Dharma. And that that itself is actually curative and healing momentum, a kind of, and that's an effort that we make that's healing in the world. And as I've been thinking about that over the last month or so, um, this something, a kind of simple formula has come forward for me and that I wanted to offer. And it is it's kind of a, I'm going to offer a dualism, sorry. <laughs> but it's one that I, that I it, it really is alive for me, which is that uh, as human beings, we, and, and really, I mean, like most human beings I've ever met, we have a capacity at any moment to come from a, to, to move from a vantage point of isolation, separation, and, and the delusion of separate self. So coming from separation, or we can make the effort to come from the vantage point of connection. In our <clears throat> tradition, or in, in the Buddhist tradition, or a lot of this is often translated as emptiness. We come from a place of emptiness, of understanding emptiness. That um, is the same concept that Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. Um, I feel like Lian, when Lian Schutt was talking a couple of weeks ago, she was talking about, um, you know, if we, if we look at Indra's net, we look at, in, in, as bodhisattvas, if we are bodhisattvas practitioners, we want to look at the net, not just focus on the jewels, the individual jewels. We look at the, we hold in our hearts and in our conception and actually in, in where we're coming from, the ground we stand on, we hold this conception of how, uh, even though we think that we're separate from each other, we know there's something bigger than that. And that's this, a um, conception of the net that ties us and the ways that our, that our actions affect one another and the ways that we are made out of one another. We're made out of these connections. We're made out of relationship. We're made out of all these contingencies and conditions. Um, so, so essentially what's come down as a practice for me is that in any moment, especially when I'm feeling confused, um, I've been holding up, can I, you know, Right now, can I come from the place of relationship? Can I come from a place of connection? 
And often that, that opens my capacity and my heart a little bit. And in uh, the class that, that Corinne and I are, are leading collaboratively with Lynn and another teacher, Dalila Bothwell, um, we're, looking at, we're looking at race and anti-racism as a practice, and we're looking at that through the lens of the Eightfold Path. So, you know, you all may, for those who have heard about the Eightfold Path, so it's the fourth noble truth. You know, the first is there, there is suffering. The second is there's a cause. Uh, the third is there's, there is a path. And the fourth is here's the path. <laughs> and it's, we traditionally, or I, I've heard it in English mostly called right, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right effort, right mindfulness, right livelihood, right concentration. Um, we've been really using, instead of using the word right, we are using the term skillful. And this is a really helpful lens, I think. What, what is skillful view? What is skillful action? And what supports skillful view and skillful action? Um, I really, I like that so much better than right because right sounds like, you know, it's finished. Or skillful encourages us to like, so in this moment, what's skillful? And for me, this, uh, this duality actually, or this, or holding up this question of, am I coming from a place of the delusion of isolation or am I coming from a place of relationship and connection? Uh, helps steer me toward a more skillful view and a more skillful uh, capacity to meet what's happening, more skillful thinking, and, and hopefully more skillful action. Um, there are there are a number of, I would say, uh, pretty pretty big obstacles <laughs> to standing in the ground of relationship that I, that I experience. Um, the first is that when we are in a state of, of overwhelm and, and neuroscience and psychology also show us this too, when we're in a state of overwhelm, we are naturally inclined to oversimplify. And, you know, like if any of you have had traumatic experiences, you, you get, you literally get tunnel vision, you literally cut off from complexity and, and the brain as an adaptive thing gets narrow and says like only focus because your survival's at stake. Um, and and there's, there are traumatic instances that are vivid and, and obvious. And then there, are, there is like kind of almost like the everyday overwhelm and trauma of, of feeling like everything's too much, you know? And lately for many of us that are in Northern California, there's the everyday tax on our nervous system of the smell of smoke and the fear of evacuation and like this is a normal I, I think it's a pretty um innate human response that our nervous systems are activated and heightened and and um for many people that i encounter in the united states that a, a, a little a, like a patina of overwhelm has become normative and so that the, and the nervous systems often taxed and so we defer to something simpler and the delusion of separation is simpler. It's not real, but it, it's graspable, it's simpler and it's familiar. <laughs> you know, I would say particularly in the, in the United States, it's um, in my experience of being acculturated in the United States with individualism being so prized, 
that this um, the delusion of isolation and separation is is literally uh, formative in in my acculturation here in this country, and my and my view of myself and of other people, actually. Um, a second obstacle I think to living in relationship is, uh, and again for me this comes strongly in in my acculturation in the United States is um, is denial. And the strong currents of denial that um, I experience in my in my upbringing, and I and I hear from others when we talk about the history that that they have or that we share. Um, we're. I heard this really neat commentary recently by a um, kind of a scholar in the in the world of of fantasy literature and science fiction and and horror. And this person was saying that, you know, that the, in the United States, ghost stories are horror stories. And they were, they were looking at that through the lens of, of kind of a socio-political commentary, which is that for white dominant culture, looking back on history is like, has this terrifying aspect that ghosts and those who are dead are seen as, as frightening. And, that, and to me, that really, that describes something that I had in my upbringing, which was like, we don't look backwards, we look forward. And what's back there is it's gone, it's in the past, I'm not accountable for it, and it's probably kind of scary actually. <laughs> and, I, and, that, that, and that holding that the American, uh, an American version of ghost story is kind of an amplification of this. And, and he was, he's Puerto Rican, the guy that, that was talking, um, his, his name is uh, Daniel Jose Older. And he was talking about how in his, in his culture, uh, ancestor connection is actually a deep is a deep current and how and how people kind of adapted Catholicism to include these older ways of having uh, ancestor relationship and that and and uh, did that very skillfully so that they could keep these old older pieces of culture and um, and that and that ghosts or those who are behind us or in the past are actually um, guides and there are people that were in relationship. And in many cultures, you know, um, and the people in my life who come from different parts of Asia, there's many, many cultures have um, like a, a built-in ancestor worship or veneration and connection. And uh, the, the Day of the Dead, which is like, you know, in the United States, one of, if I would say like our most, in, in white culture, like the, the most recent occult, uh, appropriated um, holiday because I think it's, but it speaks to something that's missing for many white Americans in particular, which is, which is a connection with ancestry and the past. And so that kind of cutting off of um, the past also means that we cut off, for those of us who are acculturated this way, we cut off having a sense of like where we come from and what shapes us and how we got here. And um, that makes it really difficult to live in the complexity that is relationship and relationality. So it's not just with one another, but with, with conditions and with history. And I think the third thing that is, can be really challenging around standing in the complexity of, of relationship and connectedness is it's ungraspable. Um, this is, I, I think Corinne and I often talk about the this, the, in the image from the Genjo Koan of like, we only see, you only see as far as your eye can reach, you know, your eye of practice can reach. You see a circle of water 
And if we're coming from that place of separation, we think the circle of water is the whole deal. But when we stand in, in the, on the ground of reality of how things are connected, we still just see the circle of water, but we know it's a circle of water and, and we know it's not the whole ocean. And we know that we abide in an ocean. It's the same thing of like, we know that we abide in that great vast net. I was thinking about how, but, but it's because it's, but it's ungraspable, it's inconceivable. The complexity of what makes any one of us and, and any, any, any conditioned thing, even our thoughts are actually like vastly complicated in their conditioning. And we can't really, we certainly can't know all the conditions. So I think as bodhisattvas, we're asked to like, can you live though from a place of holding something wider than what you can conceive of? And in the Genjo Koan too, Dogen points to this in saying, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. You think you've got a handle on it. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So when we're coming from the vantage point of Dharma, we are coming from, the, from, from an understanding there's so much beyond my perception. Um, but I was thinking about how, if I look at my acculturation again, just to use myself as an example, and, and I, you know, as I look at the, the grid of all your dear faces, I, I know and having conversations with many of you that, that a lot of this acculturation is shared, that we come from a dominant culture that says, you have to know the facts, you know, <laughs> get your facts straight. There's, and actually, as I was thinking about that terminology and that, that feeling, or when I've encountered that in my life, like, get the facts straight. Although I, I, re I do realize that collectively that's becoming shaky ground, the facts, um, that, that I, I was realizing that the word that comes to my mind is um, like a kind of viciousness. There's a kind of viciousness that I experience and have always experienced in our culture or in, in I would, not our maybe, because maybe some of us have been spared this, but in dominant culture, as I experience it, there's this harshness that's like, um, that, that, that actually points to what, what I think Charlie was uh, in part pointing to when he was talking last week about the wound that he carries, which is like, there isn't a collective sense of, of living beings having inherent value. Your value is all the stuff on the outside. You know, what's your job and what do you know? What do you know and um, what do you own? And what's your, what's your net worth? And these external valuations that are always reminding those of us that are acculturated that way, like you don't matter, the stuff around you matters and the facts matter and, um, and just how harsh that is for a human being, you know, that if, if, the, if a dominant, if the dominant culture could come from a place of relationship and that the humility that comes with understanding how connected we are, I don't think that we would treat each other that way. <laughs> I really, or I hope not, you know, and I, and I feel like this is what Dharma practice offers is a possibility that we stand in that kind of humility of like what we are is vast beyond our knowing. What I am is vast beyond my knowing. What you are is vast beyond my knowing. And thusly, I, I hold this, this encounter as a treasure. You know, it's very different than like, what do you got over there? And what's in it for me? And the cruelty of them. And that, and that kind of harshness um, I'm, is on my mind a lot as I watch people 
uh, as I watch our country sliding toward this election that and um, and and understand and begin and and you know I've been contemplating and like opening more and more to the forces of really deliberate division that are at play in our collective society in this country. Um, for those, uh, I wonder if anyone has seen the movie The Social Dilemma about uh, it's about social media and its impact on basically on our, on the collective psychology of people particularly in the United States and where you see it dovetail with individualism, but it's in other countries as well. The unintended consequences of uh, these, these, these amazing technologies. One thing that was said that, that just like broke my heart but also was relieving in the way that it named something true was that this is, it's a whole, and especially for younger, younger people who are like weaned now on social media as a form of human connection is that the foundational principle is manipulation and addiction. Like that's the ground for all this social um, in, engagement. <laughs> um, I think for those of us who you know, developed before all this stuff, it looks weird and you know, but, but they're, what they're seeing is the way that this is shaping humanity. Um, and there are some folks who are, and this movie is about people from within the industry calling for uh, moral reckoning and correction and a course correction, like how we, and regulation around this. And it feels to me so resonant with what's happening in our country, which is like, you know, we, we are collectively needing a moral reckoning with what, what's gotten us here to this place that we are. And, and still we have to work as Americans, we have to, or people in the United States, we have to work with these conditions that, that are here for us. And, um, division and the kind of and the deliberate amplification of division is one of the things that we have to work with. I was talking to a, a younger priest recently who grew up in the Midwest and would like to go home and visit their family there, uh, except they're afraid about how incensed they'll be with all the conversations that they they would anticipate having. Uh, in their family where there's a lot of people that support President Trump and, and they don't. Or even they were even worried about seeing signs in yards and stuff like that. And so we were looking at that dilemma for that person in the light of Dharma. And, and what we found ourselves coming to is, you know, as bodhisattvas, we can hold with deep compassion living beings who are not supported to come from a place of relationship. We can also hold with deep compassion living beings who, are, who, are, who haven't, don't have the support to understand that to, um, to, to not interrupt harm is actually really bad karma. You know? To support people who perpetuate harm in the world is actually really bad karma. And, and as bodhisattvas who care about living beings, we can extend that compassion like, we can be grateful if we're able to come from a place of relationship and understand like, well, I can't support these people perpetuating harm because they're harming themselves even. The, the karma, they're dig the karmic holes they're digging for themselves are creating hell realms right here in our sphere already. You know? And, that, and, that, and that, that's not super remote actually. It, it can feel that way in any given moment when someone's in your face. You know, I was, 
doing texting to uh, voters in Georgia uh, this weekend to just uh, help people get to uh, resources to vote by mail in Georgia. And I got a, I got a text back that said, you know, F you and Stacey Abrams. <laughs> and it was painful to read it. Although I was also like, wow, I just got grouped with Stacey Abrams. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but I also was like, whoa, it's harsh. You know, it's harsh to have somebody, they didn't say F you, they said the whole word. There it was, you know, like, but I really did. I paused and I was like, and I just felt into the pain of that division that that person was offering. And then I challenged myself to feel into my connection with this person, you know, on a Saturday morning, here we were encountering one another <laughs> through texts. And could I offer them well-being actually? Could I care for them at all? Could I find that in myself to be like, oh, I am sorry that another, another person said, <laughs> sorry, I have to chuckle just a little bit because to me, this like literally doesn't make any sense. They were like, people should vote in person like a patriot. Patriots vote in person. <laughs> I was like, okay. Patriots, I, patriots protect the right to vote in my understanding of patriotism. They protect democracy. I, you know, I could, and then I could just watch my mind go to like, thousands of people have died protecting this country and this democracy, right? They have gone into military service and have lost their lives and have given their lives to protect democracy. And you're gonna tell me that cutting people off from a capacity to vote is a patriotic thing to do? <laughs> Sorry. And then again, but then again, like, can I, can I stand in, a kind of loving regard that that does not dehumanize a person that has that conception can i understand some of the conditions that's why I, last night i was like charlie we need to watch the social dilemma because i knew i knew a part of the content and like can i understand that that person is arising out of conditions that are different first of all that are different than not the ones that i arise out of and secondly um, are not being supported to live in the reality of how they're connected with one another you know but to support people to vote from home who might not be able to otherwise is actually uh, an active relationship <laughs> and protection of one another. So I just, um, so I, what I wanna do um, is offer a practice that helps us to stay in relationship and to stay in connection and talk a little bit about it and then do it a little bit together before we finish, which is uh, the practice of metta. Um, it's, it's often translated as loving kindness. And I think, um, again, like given the kind of cynicism that individual, in individualism promotes, you lose a lot of people who are acculturated in the United States right there. <laughs> it's like, ugh, loving kindness. Um, so I think it might be good to think about some other translations. Metta, I think, is, is a super powerful practice. It's the practice of, of, it is love, it's based in love, but not, not a fluffy kind, you know, a fierce and um, effortful kind. The kind of love that actually keeps us grounded in relationship to all things and keeps us in, even grounded in relationship to the, to the disparate parts that we carry within ourselves. And, um, and when people, I've heard people be like, meta practice has nothing to do with Zen. I'm like, well, First of all, it's like, it's a foundational Buddhist practice. Probably it's the oldest meditation we know of in Buddhism. 
or that is recorded anyway. Um, it's foundational and, um, and to cultivate it actually is, a, I experience it as a practice of non-duality. And Zen practice is the practice of non-duality. And the, the duality, and it works with a number of dualities that we have set up. The first one is self and others or self and world. It challenges us in, in the practice. And we'll, we'll, I'll, talk, I'll describe what the practice is for those who haven't encountered it before. But it challenges us to, to um, disrupt being stuck in a sense of isolation and separation and, and apartness from the world. Another thing that it challenges is an idea of kind of the hierarchy of value of others. So the practice is that we, we begin by generating a sense of unconditional loving regard and, and kind of cherishing of ourself. And we extend it to people that it's easy for us to open our hearts to. And then we extend it to people to whom, who are neutral or who we have no emotional investment in. And we extend it to people who are hard for us to open our hearts to or difficult. And then we go out from there. This is working with a fundamental Buddhist concept of Vedana, that like all things are positive, negative, or neutral. All or all, there's a cast, there's like a, a valence in every moment and every thought and every dharma of positive, negative, neutral. We move toward it, away from it, or or we have confusion and ambivalence about it. Or neutrality about it. So if we so the cultivation of this practice is literally asking us to uh, not get stuck in thinking that there are certain people that are worthy of our loving attention and cherishing and that there are others who are not. And I, for myself, I, mean, I, I mentioned this often because it's a big part of my acculturation. You know, I grew up in New England and that Robert Frost, you know, that the Robert Frost quote of good fences make good neighbors. This was like a, this is a physical sensation I have of my childhood, you know. I, the people being in their in their own little pods. You've got your home and your fence, and like the people inside your house, they're the ones you love. People outside of that, you don't have any responsibility for. You know, um, it challenges that acculturation. And I think also we can utilize it in in this very particularly Zen way, which is uh, we we challenge a conception of when when sorry, when we do dedications in Zen, every time we do a service, we say all Buddhas 10 directions three times. So we, we, and when we do that, we're talking, we're kind of exploding our sense of, of location as being something so tight. We're saying all in all, may this, may the benefit of our efforts go out in all directions, up and down and all around, and also backward and forward in time. So the past, present and future, may there be benefit. And that's another way, again, of just, it's not that we can know how our benefit goes backwards and forward in time or up and down in space, but that's our intention. And, it, and, and every time we make that offering, we're, we're relocating ourselves on the ground of not being separate. And also we're relocating ourselves on the ground of, of the ungraspable reality of connectedness. So Zazen practice itself, I think, is, is really a, a tremendous gift to us in this time of division. So just when we do meditation, or just just when we just when we're sitting in zazen practice, we can um, we're really growing our capacity to stay with what is, to open to discomfort, um, you know, to and to be present for whatever's arising. So it's like from there, 
we can, we can bring in metta practice. And again, especially in times when we are activated, when our nervous systems are taxed, when things are difficult, I find these, these, more, um, these more enumerated practices to be super helpful tools. And I know, you know, we're not supposed to be graspy, but, but the, we do need these tools of the tradition. There's a reason why they persisted for thousands of years. It's because they're useful and they're powerful. So, um, so maybe we can just, for about, it'll just be about five minutes. I do know that a lot of Zen people don't like guided meditations. <laughs> I've had that, I've heard that feedback and I understand it. And we're not, maybe for those of us who are really grounded in Zazen, it's, we're not used to it. Like, shh, you know, <laughs> I'm doing Zazen. But I will, I'll, I, I'd like to offer this as a guided meditation. You do not need to do it if you don't want to. Or another possibility is if you really don't want to, you can use me as the person that you're irritated with <laughs> when we get to that place. <laughs> <laughs> and offer me loving kindness. The person is making you do this thing you don't want to do. So, so let's just try together. Um, I, I really do. I want to just offer it as a possibility for us. Um, this this will be maybe a five minute version of it, and you can find you can bring it into uh, zazen practice sometimes in the beginning or the end. You can also find ways to kind of make it uh, a, a micro version of it in your day, um, where you notice where you notice that path opening between separation and relationship, you can just pull in a little, can I, can I stay on this ground of, of metta? So if, for those of us who'd like to do it, let's just get started by coming into the body, maybe closing your eyes if, because we don't need the visual field of all the, the squares. And just, and actually locating ourselves in our physical body. And, and this part, uh, I have it, I've heard the feedback from many people, this part may cause anxiety, but just see if you can do it. The effort is to call forth a sensation in your heart of unconditional and loving regard toward yourself. You may, it, it can help to think if you, there are people in your life who have offered that to you, you can bring them to mind. They don't need to be living. They don't need to be human. Sometimes if we think of the loving regard of a pet, it, it is unbounded, you know, it is this kind of thing where we, um, we are loved no matter what. But the challenge is we have to offer it to ourselves. That's the anchor of this practice. It is the essential ingredient of this practice. And, and right there, we are challenging a duality uh, of any teachings we have had that we are not worthy of love. We ground ourselves in, our, in cherishing our own life and our own being and our own survival and our own uh, joy even and sense of comfort. May we be well, may I be well. And then if we can ground there, or when we can ground there, call to mind somebody for whom it's easy to love. Again, it may be human or non-human. It may be someone living or not living. Someone for whom our love is not complicated. 
It just flows easily, at least today. And fully call them to mind. And really have, see if you can picture the benefit of your well-wishing toward them. May they be well, may they be protected. May they be at ease. May they be joyful. May they benefit from our cherishing. And then we call to mind somebody who's neutral. And this is challenging. This can also be challenging. Um, you can think of a public figure that you don't have any emotional valence around, someone you pass on the street. Our minds are so quick to make uh, determinations and um, opinions that it's hard to find somebody that's really, really neutral. But see if you can. Or at least someone that has very little emotional resonance for you. And then the challenge is to take this great treasure of the warmth of your cherishing and extend it to this relatively unknown person. May they be well. May they be protected. May they benefit from this loving attention you give to them now. And if we can find stability there, we open out to someone who's challenging. And again, this is not someone who's caused us tremendous harm, especially if we're unfamiliar with this practice. We begin with someone who's mildly irritating. Uh, this can be someone that we usually cherish very much, but they've, they've pissed us off recently or they've made us feel badly. And there's just, a, there's a, it's challenging for the heart to open right now to them. And then again, we, we call on the deep resources of our practice and, our, and the love that we have, and we extend it to them. May they be well. May they feel deeply cherished in this world. May they benefit by our loving intention. May they be joyful. May they be supported to feel the connection with others and move from a place of relationship. And then for a few breaths, as much as you have the energy for, and be selective about this, because that the difficult person may be plenty. But if you feel the stability there, you can just open up 
the sphere of impact of your loving regard. Picture that like a pebble that dropped in a pond and it's just rippling outward. To the people, your neighbors, people in your town, people in the state. Also to animals, also to non-human and non-animal beings. to air beings and water beings and mountain beings and space beings and just as far as out as you want, let it ripple out. To the edges maybe of our atmosphere. Maybe there are moon beings, beings who need our loving regard. beings beyond our conception, beings deep in the earth. And then if you're stable here, reach back in time to some long ago person from whom you are descended. May your deep intention be a benefit for them. May some burden they carry be liberated in your turning your loving regard to them, even without knowing them. And if you can find stability here, reach forward in time to a being that doesn't have to be your biological descendant. It's your karmic descendant. There are people that will come generations from now who will be on the receiving end of decisions that we've made. Picture them and extend this loving regard. May my actions and my choices and my thoughts and my words somehow be of benefit to them. May someday they feel the warmth of this loving regard. And may it help. And may it heal. And just pause at these far reaches, the heart extended out. And then, and this part's really important, even if you're doing it in a, in a quick version, try not to skip this. Turn your attention around and come all the way back through every being you've pictured. In the future, in the past, to the far reaches of the earth, coming closer in, closer in. Through the person whom it's difficult to open to through the neutral person, through the beloved person, now back to ourselves. And if it's useful, you can even maybe put your hand on your heart. And now this loving regard is flavored 
with not being so bounded by duality and separation. And now again, we offer it to ourselves. May I be well. May I be protected. May I cherish my own life so that I may offer loving regard to others. May I locate myself here in all my words, in all my thoughts, in all my actions. Thank you all very much.